Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Thank you, Lois. Those are very kind and generous words, which uh, mean a great deal to me. And uh, we are happy to be here. It's a, it's a great pleasure to uh, join you today, <clears throat> particularly as uh, we look back and see what this series has looked like, this distinguished uh, 10th anniversary series. So I'm happy to be able to contribute to this. Uh, the uh, Walter H. Capps Center for the Study of Ethics, Religion, and Public Life and to uh, be with all of you. I, as, as Lois uh, mentioned, we, uh, we go way back. Um, I knew Walter slightly at uh, Yale Divinity School. He was, um, he was a graduate student, actually, and traveled in more rarefied uh, intellectual circles than, than I did. Uh, Lois and I, however, were taking lots of uh, BD classes together, Bachelor of Divinity classes together, and, uh, and Walter's brother, Don Capps, uh, we lived on our, our hall in our, in our dormitory, so I, I knew him somewhat uh, more, more closely. Because of that earlier association, and, and Lois has already uh, referred to this, uh, there were hopefully parallel tracks of our careers. I followed Walter's political ventures uh, from afar with, uh, with great interest. Um, he and I came to the house together in the class of 1996. As, as Lois said, I was a recycled freshman, having uh, served four previous terms and then been uh, voted out as part of the 94 Gingrich Revolution. Uh, Walter uh, had won election on his second try. Uh, he tried first in that 1994 year, which wasn't a very good time to, uh, to try uh, anything from the Democratic side. Uh, but uh, this was one of the most competitive districts in the country, and so it was quite, uh, quite a big news item when, when Walter Capps took this congressional seat in 1996. Uh, my wife Lisa is with uh, me here today, and our daughter Karen. We're very happy to be here with uh, Lois, who has become a dear friend and a treasured colleague over these past 10 years. Uh, Lois is a member with whom I feel like I share uh, as many values and priorities as I do with any, any member. Uh, we've been able to give effect to some of those values and priorities through uh, our service on the House Democracy Assistance Commission, which engages and supports our fellow parliamentarians in emerging democracies. We've worked together on Middle East politics and policy, trying to uh, promote Middle East peacemaking to encourage a more constructive American role in that region. And we've both been part of the effort in the Congress to promote among our colleagues the kind of discussion among uh, the, the kind of discussion of the faith politics uh, intersection that I hope we can engage in here today. In thinking about today's assignment, I was uh, struck by the tribute to Walter Capps voiced by one of his former students, uh, Wendy Wright, in the forum held here about a month ago, May, May 10th. She was speaking explicitly of his legacy as a scholar of religious studies, but what struck me, and, and what I think would have struck anyone who uh, knew Walter or who worked with Walter, was the parallel uh, between what she said and, and the way we know he, he approached any undertaking and, and approached life in general. Let me, let me just read briefly. His contagious fascination with the lived experience of religiosity, his self-reflective concern for the interiority of that experience, his singular sensitivity to the deep questions, 
his delight in the multitude of ways that religious questing takes place, his disciplined attention to the dynamics of the human heart that soars to ultimate concerns, his resonance with those searing questions that will not rest and the study of which is never fully exhausted, his integrity that honored the seriousness of academic questions as well as the imperative of religious questing, his playfulness that refused to make idols of theory yet valued theory for the intelligibility it could supply. What a tribute. Wouldn't any of us, uh, what would we give to have our students say things like that uh, of us? Uh, I'm going to return to more of this uh, later. For now, I simply want to uh, echo this tribute, this wonderful tribute, uh, to the qualities of mind and heart that have shaped Walter Capps' life and legacy. Now, our topic today, faith in forming politics, is one to which Walter gave a great deal of attention particularly in his interpretation of what he called the new religious right. Lois and I have witnessed uh, and participated in another couple of turns in that road, uh, particularly since the 2004 elections. Those elections displayed a strong connection between professed religiosity and Republican voting. Uh, This has prompted a great deal of concern and soul-searching among those of more progressive religious and political views. Now, all of this seems both familiar and ironic to those of us who came of age in the 60s, or indeed who partook of the ferment of those years at the Yale Divinity School. I say familiar because the current discussion resurrects questions about the relation of faith and civilization which uh, our mentor, H. Richard Niebuhr, explored as what he called a perennial area of Christian perplexity. I say ironic because it sometimes places us in the surreal position of denying that we're aggressive secularists. Speaking personally, I regard my undergraduate years and my years at uh, Yale Divinity School, uh, years which coincided with the early civil rights movement and culminated in the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, regard those years as the time when my own political and religious um, identities were decisively shaped. Nowadays, religious conservatives claim the banner of faith-based politics for themselves, and their political leaders not only ignore the religious and moral roots of progressive politics, but often portray the entire Democratic Party as hostile to the faith connection. How has it come to this? Some of, this, some of the religious groups that we criticized in the 1960s for their individualistic and otherworldly approach to faith have become politically mobilized. And their cultural conservatism has become a key component of Republican politics. Mainstream, uh, so-called mainstream religious communities have often seemed confused or complacent. Some have mistakenly assumed, uh, reacting to the excesses of the religious right, that the separation of church and state requires a separation of faith and politics. Some progressive politicians have even become reluctant to tell their own personal stories or to advocate their positions in moral terms. Among many mainstream congregants, nothing has ever quite matched the clarity and the conviction of civil rights. And there's been a reluctance to take on religious conservatives in either religious or political forums. Some of this confusion and complacency has now been lifting 
And it's not just on the religious and political left uh, that discussion has intensified. There does seem to be a renewed awareness across the spectrum that the faith-politics connection requires searching examination. And this uh, cannot and should not be mainly a matter of seeking political advantage. Uh, Both our faith and our politics require the exploration of the wellsprings of our own vision for society and the way our deepest values should shape public policy. Today I want to focus on the passion that faith brings to politics, on how the translation from conviction to political action works, and some of the pitfalls to which it is subject. I'll also argue that faith constrains even as it inspires us, leading us to limit political power and to stop well short of identifying our own causes with God's will. And finally, I'll reflect on how the discussion is going these days based on the 2008 election season. The rediscovery by many Americans of the Hebrew prophets and their call for justice that rolls down like waters had far-reaching political and religious significance in the 1960s. Many of us came to understand, and this I think probably applied especially to, uh, to Southerners raised in, uh, in Southern Protestant uh, uh, environment, many of us came to understand that this familiar compartmentalization of life that we really were all familiar with, where, where people who were personally loving and generous saw no contradiction in supporting laws and social practices that denied others their humanity, that 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 was ultimately untenable. So the result was a new direction in public policy charted in the landmark civil rights uh, statutes of 1964 and 65. Civil rights, I think, remains a paradigmatic uh, case. Uh, The prophetic imperative to do justice and love kindness, however, speaks to much of our political life. It requires, requires us to cut through the welter of policy detail, to ask what government is doing in our name, to subject military interventions to just war criteria, for example, or to evaluate governmental budgets as moral documents. Faith inspires passionate engagement in the political arena, but that doesn't mean that it's always simple or straightforward to translate religious and moral convictions into social action. For one thing, our faith traditions themselves reveal diverse modes of engagement. Let me just suggest uh, one example. Consider the biblical roles of prophet and peacemaker. Uh, The psalmist extols the blessings of kindred living together in unity. But then listen to the prophet Jeremiah, who rebukes those whose desire for peace leads to passivity in the face of evil. From prophet to priest, they've treated the wound of my people carelessly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The life of Jesus uh, displays a similar tension. Some people, like Martin Luther King in our day, find creative ways of reconciling the roles of prophet and peacemaker. But often people of faith will be called to differing and even contrasting modes of engagement. Passion must also employ reason. In the legislative arena, the calculation of consequences is essential. Uh, One of the few times, and there haven't been many, but one of the few times in Congress that I have referred explicitly to my seminary background came uh, last year during a caucus discussion 
of a Democratic proposal to put conditions and withdrawal deadlines on a supplemental appropriations bill on Iraq. One colleague stood up and said that because the bill did not immediately defund the war, he was not sure that he, as a former seminarian, could vote for it in good conscience. That prompted me to counter with the distinction, familiar from the first day of <clears throat> Ethics 101, <clears throat> between uh, deontological and tele teleological theories of ethics, although I hasten to assure you I didn't use those terms. <laughs> I didn't lay those terms on my colleagues, but you, you know what I was talking about. What I asked, what if the result of joining Republicans in a no vote on this attempt to to condition the, the supplemental appropriations. What if the result of joining Republicans in a no vote because our proposal fell short of liberal members' notion of perfection was to bring it down? There was a real chance that would happen. What if the consequence was to forfeit the best chance that we might have for some time to compel a change in war policy? What if the result was to show fatal weakness and division and thus to compromise our longer-term prospects for taking foreign policy in a new direction. It was precisely conscience, I said, that required us not merely to measure our bill against an ideal standard, but to count the costs, calculate the consequences of possible defeat. Passion and conviction are compatible with seeking common ground with those who come to politics from other backgrounds or perspectives. Indeed, they often require it. Uh, the happy experience of the Civil Rights Movement, and the Civil Rights Movement was my first interfaith experience. The experience was that many people from diverse backgrounds uh, can bring their deepest convictions to political advocacy and at the same time ally with others whose backgrounds differ or whose background doesn't have a conventional religious, didn't bring a conventional religious uh, perspective at all. Um, this will often involve but going, going beyond a specifically religious frame of reference, invoking the commonly held values of the shared aspirations of the wider community. It also requires a willingness to reason together, as opposed to viewing our religious convictions as debate stoppers. Religious conservatives sometimes resist this. They sometimes portray the search for common ground as requiring them, as one of my colleagues puts it, to check my Christian beliefs at the public door. There's also a tendency to see the invoking of universal values as producing a mere common denominator that lacks specificity or force. That, I believe, greatly underestimates the power of the fundamental principles of our constitutional democracy, which have deep religious roots, but also find wider resonance. Certainly it would have come as news, wouldn't it, to Frederick Douglass or Martin Luther King, as they invoked the Declaration of Independence to combat slavery and segregation, that making a universalistic appeal somehow diluted their passion or the force of their argument? What, however, if such common ground is not to be found? Obviously, there are sectarian rules and practices that individuals and communities regard as binding, but without any thought of trying to uh, extend them to the broader community. But the boundary is not always distinct. The boundary is delineating what may legitimately be taken into the public arena. Uh, is, is, that's, that boundary is neither clear nor uncontroversial. 
Some politicians, for example, including many who are personally opposed to abortion on religious and moral grounds, argue against, quote, imposing such views on society. Others regard that position as unjustifiably preempting legitimate political debate. Or consider the issue of gay rights. Like abortion, gay rights evokes contrasting responses among and within religious communities. Many people of faith, for good reason, believe that gays and heterosexual relationships, that gay and heterosexual relationships should be guided by the same moral standards of fidelity and mutual commitment. The law cannot compel such values, but neither should it stand in the way of their realization. Moreover, the denial of equal protection under the law to gays, which some rationalize in terms of religious belief, is likely to con conflict with, with widely shared principles such as civil liberty or non-discrimination and equal opportunity, which them, themselves have strong religious pedigrees. So the best course often is to refrain from cod codifying a specific concept of personal morality, leaving the individual and the communal expression of conscience free. But we can't always resolve such matters simply by declaring them off-limits for political debate. Those who oppose efforts to shape or sanction various aspects of personal morality often will need to challenge the proponents directly within religious and other institutions of civil society as well as in the political arena. Now, many questions still surround the agenda for engagement. Not only what issues are best left free of governmental prescription, but also how to prioritize the wide range of issues with implications for faith and morality. Religious communities often seem to talk past one another. Conservative groups focus on matters such as abortion and gay marriage, while liberals stress questions of economic justice and war and peace. There's some convergence, issues like pornography, gambling, increasingly environmental protection, interestingly enough. All would do well to guard against the human tendency to address only those questions and heed only those teachings that they find convenient or, or comfortable. In the end, however, some selective judgment is inevitable, whether we're dealing with the codes of Leviticus or the admonitions of the Sermon on the Mount. Much depends on how we read and understand the Bible. Referencing scriptural commands, for example, as opposed to heeding the admonitions throughout the prophets and the New Testament to attend less to the minutia of the law and more to its weightier matters, justice and mercy and faith. Relating faith and politics is not merely a matter of obeying commands. It requires ongoing efforts to mine the riches of our religious traditions and to apply them to new and challenging circumstances. Now, even as our faith prompts passionate engagement in the political arena, it also raises warnings and suggests constraints on the form and content of our advocacy. Two constraints written into the Constitution, U.S. Constitution, checks and balances among the major organs of government, and the First Amendment's twin prohibition of the establishment of religion and the prevention of its free exercise, have deep religious roots and continuing significance in terms of our understanding of human nature and religious liberty. James Madison's reflections on the interior structures of the government reveal a persistent streak of Calvinism in this uh, Son of the Enlightenment, this passage from the Federalist Papers. What's government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. 
If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, you must first enable the government to control the government and in the next place oblige it to control itself. This view, interpreted by Reinhold Niebuhr as a landmark expression of what he called Christian realism, must be distinguished from the more simplistic anti-power ideology that persistently rears its head in American politics. Government's hardly the only realm where power exists or can be abused. In fact, political power can be used to counter or control economic, military, or other kinds of power. We must attend not only to the dangers of strengthening a given organ of government, but also to the powers and interests that might fill the vacuum if it's weakened. The realism rooted in our religious traditions provides an awareness of the presence of self-interest and self-seeking in all human endeavors, the necessity of using power judiciously as we pursue the common good, and the need for checks and safeguards as we recognize the vulnerability of power in all realms to distortion and abuse. The First Amendment also embodies religiously inspired constraints on engagement. By no means does it require a strict privatization of faith, but it does provide certain ground rules for relating religion uh, to government. Religious conservatives often chafe at these ground rules and treat them as a secular imposition. People of faith need to understand that, on the contrary, the First Amendment has deep and firm religious roots. A brief look at the lineage of the Establishment Clause will reveal that Roger Williams and other proponents of the separation of church and state were far more focused on the church's integrity than on the state's prerogatives. What was and still at stake is not only civil liberty, but also religious faithfulness. The First Amendment and the tensions between the Establishment and the Free Exercise Clauses have been at issue in debates over President Bush's faith-based initiative. Now, such uh, initiatives, uh, for example, uh, congregationally sponsored housing for the elderly paid for out of the, the uh, HUD budget, the Housing and Urban Development budget, or uh, Meals on Wheels, uh, these faith-based initiatives have uh, flourished for a long time in my district and across the country. They weren't thought of by the Bush administration. I thought Democrats actually, in dealing with this initiative, should have been more vocal in welcoming the president uh, to the fray. Uh, but there was also good reason to voice concern, and sometimes that was the dominant uh, theme about the ground rules. Religiously or religious organizations have taken pains, often by administering their social services through legally distinct entities, to avoid using federal funds for sectarian purposes and to ensure against discrimination in hiring and in the choice of beneficiaries. Uh, that's what Bush uh, sought to alter, and it helps explain the faith-based initiatives' uh, difficulties in the Senate and in the courts. Finally, our religious traditions teach us humility, and that too should shape and constrain our politics. This is the point of the familiar story of Abraham Lincoln's response during the Civil War to a clergyman who expressed the hope that the Lord was on the side of the Union. In other words, God bless America. I know the Lord is always on the side of the right, uh, Lincoln said, but it's my constant anxiety and prayer that I and this nation should be on the Lord's side. This anecdote, like Lincoln's masterful second inaugural address, 
uh, draws on a religious understanding central to the Jewish and Christian faiths. Our own will and striving are always subject to God's judgment, even perhaps especially when we're most confident we're doing God's will. This doesn't mean we engage less vigorously. After all, Lincoln was uh, at that moment of the second inaugural or was relentlessly pursuing a military victory. But he did voice what Reinhold Niebuhr called a religious reservation, a, reg a recognition that ultimate judgment belongs to God alone and a refusal to presume an absolute identification between his own cause and God's will. Like God-fearing people of all ages, Niebuhr wrote, we are never safe against the temptation of claiming God too simply as the sanctifier of whatever we most fervently desire. Note again, once again, the most powerful argument against religious and political pretension isn't secular. It's theological. Claiming divine sanction for our own power or program doesn't merely undermine American pluralism. It also flies in the face of our religious understanding of human sinfulness and divine transcendence. Well, I hope these thoughts uh, are suggestive to you as to the paths down which the faith politics discussion might, uh, might go, both as regards the positive engagement of, of politics uh, from a faith uh, perspective and also the, uh, the constraints that uh, our faith traditions suggest, uh, the protection of religious liberty, the uh, uh, counseling of a, of a degree of, um, of humility. Uh, the current election season displays some hopeful signs, uh, but it's produced its share of diversions and detours. And in concluding, I want to reflect uh, briefly uh, on those. Each of the three candidates who are still in the presidential race have demonstrated uh, an increased openness to revealing their, their personal faith uh, narratives. Uh, John McCain, who in the past has been uh, reluctant to talk about uh, spiritual matters, has uh, brought his personal faith to the fore uh, increasingly in recounting his POW ordeal. Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama have gone much farther in relating their religious and moral convictions to the issues they would face as president. This has been facilitated by forums organized uh, by the Sojourners Organization and by uh, CNN's uh, so-called Compassion Forum uh, broadcast a few weeks ago. Now, the questions posed at these forums often reflected uh, a lack of, of common understanding among the questioners as to what kind of information is pertinent or helpful as regards the faith politics connection. Clinton and or Obama, for example, were quizzed about their favorite Bible stories, the details of their prayer life, when they had felt the Holy Spirit, and whether God created the world in six days. Time Magazine's Amy Sullivan, whose book uh, The Party Faithful has urged Democrats to engage on matters of faith more directly, suggested after the Compassion Forum that this line of questioning wasn't quite what she had in mind. And here's what she said. If the two Democrats hadn't tossed the occasional when I'm president into their answers, it would have been easy to forget that they're running to be commander-in-chief and not national theologian. As it was, they each at least had the good grace to look uncomfortable uh, when the questioning veered away from policy and principles into piety. 
Their discomfort, uh, Sullivan went on to uh, note, was all the more striking because both Clinton and Obama have demonstrated a willingness to talk about their faith that stands out among their Democratic colleagues. Their ease and familiarity with religious language and communities, she observed, surpasses that of most members of their party, not to mention the GOP nominee, John McCain. Indeed, that ability and willingness to engage in ways that are both pertinent and helpful was evident at many points uh, during these forums. Uh, both candidates addressed the need for people of faith to find common ground with diverse others and to invoke uh, commonly held values. They were quite articulate on that uh, point. Both demonstrated a discriminating understanding of the separation of church and state. Uh, they brought religious and moral convictions to bear on a number of issues, including uh, poverty, uh, international health programs, torture, abortion, euthanasia. And both invoked the story I just told about Lincoln, interestingly. Obama, in response to a question about whether God was on the side of U.S. troops, and Clinton when asked whether God wanted her to be president. I particularly commend to you uh, Obama's keynote address to the call for a renewal conference in, in 2006, a very, a very thoughtful piece. So, the discussion has advanced in important ways. But then there's this matter of John Hagee and Jeremiah Wright. Uh, John Hagee, whose endorsement John McCain sought and received, and Jeremiah Wright, Barack Obama's longtime pastor. Uh, both pastors have had their incendiary statements broadcast widely, and both have now been denounced by the candidates. This, too, we're bound to say, is not quite what we advocates of engagement had in mind. Both Hagee and Wright have tested the political limits of the faith connection, not merely in the extremity of their messages, nor in their close identification with the presidential candidates, but in the way they combined those two things. They've tested the limits in another sense of, as well. When Senator Clinton was asked in the Compassion Forum why, quote, a loving God allows innocent people to suffer, not exactly a, a new question. It was one of those moments, although she, she dealt with it gamely, it's one of those moments when the forum seemed to veer off course into theological realms unrelated to fitness for office. But what would you think upon hearing this view of how God acts in history? And I'm quoting, all hurricanes are acts of God because God controls the heavens. I believe that New Orleans had a level of sin that was offensive to God and that they were recipients of the judgment of God for that. That uh, courtesy of John Hagee. Or consider this from Jeremiah Wright. When asked about his comment after 9-11 that American chickens are coming home to roost. To quote the Bible, he said, be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever you sow, that you also shall reap. Now, these uh, verses represent uh, dubious theology, uh, to put it mildly. And one would hope that religious communities and people of faith can figure that out without uh, relying on theological musings from their presidential candidates. But to say the views are extreme is not to say they can be written off as irrelevant. 
I, I don't believe we would want someone with that view of God's agency anywhere near the levers of national power. And I suppose we're now on notice that the line between which moral and religious views are relevant to performance in office and which are not is not as bright as we might have thought that it was. The case of Reverend Wright raises a further question which is essential for people of faith to face, even as we uh, criticize the way Reverend Wright himself handled it. You can think of it as the question of patriotism, of how one loves one con one's country. And it's um, in a way of, and, and, and it is, is a way, I think, of summing up much of what I've tried to say here today. In the days following Reverend Wright's National Press Club appearance, where incidentally he brushed off a question about his feelings toward America simply by referencing his years in the military. I referred often, I was asked a good bit about this after the uh, press club appearance, I referred often to, uh, to an aphorism about patriotism. I first heard from William Sloan Coffin in the Yale Chapel many years ago. There are three kinds of patriots, Coffin said. Two bad and one good. The bad ones are the uncritical lovers of their country and the loveless critics. Good patriots carry out a lover's quarrel with their country, a reflection of God's lover's quarrel with all the world. That's the kind of patriotism, a loyalty to our country coupled with a determination to mend its flaws on which America continues to depend. This isn't a monopoly of people of faith, but people of faith have a special obligation to seek a just society and to resist political arrogance and pretension. And it's here in closing that I want to return to the teaching and the example of Walter Capps. I'm relying here on Walter's reflections on the work of conservative theologian Francis Schaeffer with the help of Robert Orsi's uh, paper from last month's uh, forum. After giving Schaefer full and fair explication, as he always did, Walter drew an insightful parallel between Schaefer's pessimistic and censorious view and the world denial of the early Gnostics. What Irenaeus attested to against the Gnostics, Walter said, must be attested to again. That which deserves to be improved and perhaps needs to be transformed must first be acknowledged and must always be affirmed. Within the biblical tradition, Walter further noted, the effective prophets did more than cast judgment. They also offered a redemptive proposal to assist those under judgment to find some compelling way out. These words reflect not only Walter Capps' historical interpretation, but they also reflect his personal bearing and character. World-affirming, empathetic, hopeful, pained by the world's folly and injustice, but convinced that persuasion and political action could make a difference. His example can inspire and guide us as we take our faith and conviction with us into the political arena, carrying on a lover's quarrel with our country, a reflection of God's lover's quarrel 
with Aldora. Thank you. Today, Senator Obama declared that he has quit his church. In light of what you have been saying about what is happening in 2008 with politics and the church, would you care to comment on that? Do you think that it was necessary? How do you feel about, um, about the senator's personal decision? We can't know whether or not he feels that he was betraying his own, own beliefs, but imagine if you were in his position, could you comment on that, that uh, kind of decision making? I, I probably can't comment very satisfactorily, nor should I, nor should I try. I, uh, my wife and I and daughter were uh, watching the TV reports um, of, of, what, of, of the latest episode that led to this. And uh, it was uh, Jeremiah Wright and then some in terms of, the, of this uh, priest who was in, in that church. Uh, it may be that Senator Obama felt that, uh, that the congregation itself, the church itself, had become a, a forum for this kind of uh, message and this kind of activity. I have no idea. I'm, I'm working like you are from news reports, and so I'm not going to try to, to, to judge it. Um, um, it seems to me that um, it's, um, it, it is, it's, it's a serious diversion, but it is a diversion from, uh, from the... Uh, the business of the of the campaign, including the business of relating morality and conviction and and, and policy, which uh, ought to be central to the to the campaign. And so, uh, I think uh, Senator Obama does have to deal with it. I won't presume to judge exactly at this point what uh, what method of dealing with it, what method of separating himself is uh, most appropriate. Um, I like what you said about um, the weight of your matters and mercy, judgment, and faith. Um, like uh, not straining at a gnat, swallowing a camel. I, I agree with with that. Um, as far as impeachment, um, it's I believe it's not so much about winning, but doing the right thing. And why take an oath to defend the Constitution from um, enemies, foreign or domestic, and, and not uphold that? Because that is that's an oath. You need to take an oath, and it should fall. I believe follow through. So why not follow through on the on the oath regarding impeachment? Well, again. Uh, our oath to defend the Constitution applies to everything, everything that we do. Um, impeachment is one tool which uh, the Constitution does provide to a, to, for, for a certain range of offenses. Um, but everything we do, should our oath of office should be foremost in our minds, shouldn't it? I mean, the notion that our oath of office uniquely impels us toward impeachment in cases of even very serious disagreement, I just, I just don't think uh, there's anything in the, in the Constitution or in our constitutional history to, uh, to suggest that. So, um, sure, when, the, when, uh, when impeachment is, uh, is called for in terms of the constitutional precedence, then, uh, for then, then we should and consider it seriously. And in this case, felonies as well. But um, just speaking for myself, I take my oath of office uh, seriously in, um, in everything that I do and, and the constitutional constraints that we're operating under. This applies to the way we fund things and the conditions we put on funding. It applies to the laws we pass. It applies to the investigations and hearings that we hold, the subpoenas that we issue. There's nothing unique about impeachment in that regard. It's all a matter 
It's all tied up with constitutional morality. Would you say impeachment was more Old Testament or New Testament? No, I'm kidding. Uh, to get off of the impeachment topic. <laughs> Um, there's been some interesting discussion in the popular media that we're, we have a habit in America about being able to discuss political views of different organizations or individuals, but it's come uh, the question of uh, it's not considered politically correct to talk about people's um, different religious viewpoints. And I was wondering why you think that is true, that we can question people about political topics, but you, you can't ask them about their individual religious beliefs or argue with you know, certain types of, of religious beliefs if you're from a, a different belief system. Well, I'm, I'm in, in my remarks today, and particularly in reflecting on the Compassion Forum and the, the uh, very self-conscious efforts that certain people and groups are, are now making to bring these matters into public discourse. I'm wrestling with that uh, myself, and I, uh, I don't have a bright line to, to draw, uh, but I was trying to suggest some of the kinds of questions that I thought, uh, while they, they may be very important religiously, they may be important to some, someone's own uh, faith uh, life and experience, I don't believe that they... Uh, normally would have a, a direct connection to, uh, to, to performance in office and, and, and therefore would have a, a place in a, uh, in a presidential campaign debate. Um, let me try to restate to what, what I think we're seeking here is, uh, is not so much discussions of religion for uh, re religion's sake, so to speak. We're, what we're doing is recognizing that in our public life, and in the life of most of us who are in politics, uh, there are underlying moral and, re and religious uh, beliefs, convictions that have, have shaped very importantly what we stand for and what we aspire to. And that uh, we need to be more forthcoming about that. Partly it's a matter of communicating effectively. Partly it's a matter of, of, of candor and being understood. But I do think... Uh, in all of this, we are, we are not claiming a kind of exclusive purchase on the truth. In fact, we're, we're reaching out in ways that I described. We understand that people without conventional religious backgrounds are often, uh, often share these, uh, these moral um, concerns and, and become partners in these uh, efforts. So uh, I don't know what's politically correct or not, but, but, I, but I, I, I do want to get at what's politically relevant. And I would like to see the, the interjection of, of faith matters uh, and, and moral concerns as well, the interjection of those into our politics to, uh, to, to be uh, focused on, on what's relevant to performance in office and, and the kind of policies one would, one would support. We don't have religious tests for office in this country. and We shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't move toward that. Uh, I would never say you couldn't ask a candidate anything you wanted to. We all are used to that, uh, and we. we uh, but but I but I do think uh, I hope what I said today suggests what the focus of this should be and what the importance of it is. It has to do with the quality of our public life and what we're aspiring to in society, and that has great uh, that has important religious roots, and I, I want to see those uh, those discussed and and uh, made explicit. 
Thank you very much for referencing uh, Walter Capps, who many of us here still remember very vividly and very fondly. One of the things that Walter practiced, uh, as Wade knows, at the university and he took with him to Washington was the idea that the question and discussion of faith can create a common ground where people of different political backgrounds can come together uh, in friendship to discuss uh, and even to disagree. If you had to make a prescription for the next administration, no matter who it is, about how to restore civility and comedy based on the moral underpinnings of faith in the next Congress and the next administration, because certainly the last eight or ten years, uh, the bipartisan or nonpartisanship that the people in the country are hoping for and that Walter really used to uh, advocate have been in short supply. So based on his principles and teachings and your own background uh, at the seminary, what would you recommend to bring the two parties together on issues that all Americans are really interested in? Well, I guess the first thing I'd say is that I'm not sure it's um, I'm not sure that a, a new president or or those of us in elected offices are the most promising ones to to lead this discussion. Uh, in fact, uh, I I don't believe it is our uh, our, our role necessarily to. Uh, to, uh, to initiate uh, these discussions of faith and politics. I think uh, that one of the things I'm advocating for, and I try to support every way I can, is the renewal of these discussions in uh, congregations and in uh, the institutions of civil society. And uh, that, that, that is a very healthy sign, the extent to where that's what the, 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 which that's going on. And I, I've had the same experience that you refer to Walter having. Uh, you would think these discussions would be terribly divisive and... and uh, and, and often the result is, is quite the opposite. People, um, people coming together dis- discover that they have commonalities that they weren't uh, aware of. Um, the, the kind of tone set by, by elected leaders, including the president, and, and the kind of um, uh, respect and receptivity that they display, I think can be an important in- ingredient in this. Uh, I, uh, I, I would hope that the new president would... Uh, would feel free to uh, to draw on, to refer to, and to draw on moral convictions in the society, and get, again to do that in inclusive ways, in in ways that draw us together and realize that we do occupy a common ground. I think there's um, there's a level of um, of inspiration, and and that that uh, is to be had there when when one explicitly draws on the, those wellsprings of uh, of political uh, conviction some presidents have been very very good at that um, i i do i do believe both hillary clinton and barack obama just to speak about the democratic candidates for the moment i think they're unusually articulate about these these matters and uh, that i would take some some hope in that for the quality of our national uh, conversation but i wouldn't uh, i wouldn't say this is uh, Something that the president or elected officials are mainly responsible for. What we what we need in this country is, um, in, in the religious communities uh, and, and and other communities interested in these matters, we need a, a, a kind of uh, a development of of, uh, of the of the kinds of discussions about these things that I think in in some quarters had become uh, become pretty uh, almost almost obsolete. And and I, I do think they're coming back, and I think that's a good thing. Perhaps uh, this will follow along with the previous question a bit, but 
Uh, you can tell, well, you've been to our community before, visiting your son when he was a student, and, and you can surmise correctly, I'm sure, that this area very uh, much wants us to protect our environment as both elected officials and also from the grassroots level. And you did, and I know that you, um, you prize that as well in your district in North Carolina. Um, you mentioned a hopeful sign that, that we are coming together and informing our policies with faith perspectives. And one you mentioned was the environment. And I wonder if you'd, um, and, and just now you kind of made a distinction between policy setters and, and then the communities themselves that need to come mm -hmm. together, that then they'll be more in sync. Is this an area, this particular area, that many feel is a real at a tipping point or a crisis in terms of global warming or climate change and that faith communities can um, really, really help us uh, address this issue as, as we should as a country? Absolutely. I, I can't think of a, of a riper subject for uh, discussion and, and, and debate and, and relating to uh, our, uh, our faith perspective, our, our notion of stewardship, our notion of uh, what it means to, uh, to protect uh, creation and to be, be co-stewards in, uh, in uh, preserving uh, what we've uh, inherited. Um, there are a couple of interesting things about the way this debate has, has developed. For, for one thing, I think it uh, shows how, uh, how risky it is to overgeneralize about, uh, about some of the matters I was discussing here today, about the agendas that various groups bring to politics. First of all, the term evangelical is a very, very broad term, and it, it, it uh, includes various theological and political uh, perspectives. And, uh, the, the agendas have never been identical across that whole spectrum, and, and now it's developing in even more uh, interesting ways. And uh, it's creating some conflict, too, and some pushback from, from some of the older, uh, older spokespeople of, uh, of, uh, of some of the uh, religious uh, groups. But, uh, yeah, this does appear to be one area where, uh, where there's not a, a clear... Uh, the ship's passing in the night a phenomenon going on. Uh, th this is a, an issue that almost everyone agrees uh, is, is worthy of the attention and the engagement of, of people of faith. And, you're, of course, the debate in the Congress is now reaching uh, with, the, with the change in party control in the Congress and, and with the presidential debates. But, but I think even before the presidential election, there's going to be some Senate action on this, and it's, uh, it's reached a level of, of relevance. Uh, even former detractors are now saying the scientific evidence is incontrovertible. And, uh, and so this is a very ripe issue for policy uh, initiatives and also for moral uh, reflection. The original name of the CAP Center was the Walter CAP Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life. And a couple of years uh, into the, the center, uh, the decision was made to add ethics there in the title. And there were a couple of different reasons for that, but I think it was also to really try to suggest the broad and deep stakes involved in uh, the types of issues that Walter Capps was involved with and that the center was involved with. And I wonder if some of the problems with talking about religion that you were describing and the kind of bizarre detours and digressions uh, that, that those conversations uh, take has something to do with the fact that it's really difficult to talk about ethics in our uh, culture. People can talk about whether something was criminal or they can talk about whether 
whether it was um, uh, you know, against a certain moral uh, creed, uh, but it's not that easy to talk about ethics. Uh, and that's sort of, I think, part of the problem of the sort of lack of uh, debate and dialogue in, in so many important areas. And I wanted to salute your work with the House uh, Humanities Caucus because I really think that the humanities are a way for people, not just for students, uh, but for all people, to somehow engage some of the deepest issues about human behavior, about identity, about self and other, uh, and uh, about... Uh, you know, those sort of words that are difficult to even talk about, right or wrong, uh, and um, that somehow if we could um, sort of have a deeper engagement with literature and with history and with uh, religious studies and with all the other areas of, uh, of the humanities, it would be easier to engage in some of these ethical uh, discussions and even debates, which in some sense these sort of false conversations about religion are really uh, substituting for in some ways. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a very good observation, I think. Uh, one one thing that is, is striking, however, is that um, as hard as it is sometimes to talk in explicitly ethical or moral terms, that, that is an area where, um, where common ground often is to be found among various religious t- traditions and others who may not have conventional religious uh, backgrounds. And, and so it's, um, you often hear, hear people say we may not agree on the theology or, or the uh, or the belief system that underpins this, but we, we can't agree on the morality, on the, on the, on the moral imperative that, uh, that uh, comes from, from various uh, perspectives. And I, and I do think there's, there's unity to be, to be found in that, uh, and uh, also sometimes genuine uh, uh, disagreement. Um, moral discourse, like religious discourse, shouldn't be uh, a conversation stopper, shouldn't be a matter of, of simply saying, uh, so be it. Uh, it's, it's, but but to, to to actually engage and to not uh, not hesitate to, uh, to to deal with the moral dimensions of what we're what we're working with, I think is important. I, and I think congressional debate in certain respects has taken uh, taken that turn. Uh, if you looked at our budget debates in in the last couple of years, I think you'd find more in the way of uh, of explicit moral references. Uh, certainly, when it comes to something like like these humanitarian uh, crises, uh, world, world uh, hunger, uh, HIV-AIDS, uh, humanitarian uh, catastrophes, uh, genocide. Uh, the, world is, um, the world is aware. The world has a bad conscience. The world has some historical awareness uh, of, of uh, the costs of past uh, neglect. And, and, and so there, too, there's a... There's a more explicit awareness, often articulated, about the need to bring that moral dimension. There's some things that we simply cannot and should not to tolerate, should not, should not let go on in this world. And that, uh, that sometimes may trump our more careful calculations, for example, about where our country involves itself in certain international situations. So I'm, I'm rambling a bit, but the point is, uh, I, I think you're right. And, uh, and I think where all this comes to bear often is on a, a kind of moral nexus that one draws. And as for what you said about uh, the kind of education and background people uh, need to uh, be aware of this dimension and to uh, engage in these discussions in a, in, a, uh, in a helpful way, I couldn't agree more. I think this, um, 
the, the study of history and literature and religion and philosophy and the humanities. That, it is a lot of what's behind my sense that uh, we need to support this work. As, as enamored as we get, and we should be, we should be pushing very hard on science, math, engineering, technical education. Our country's uh, dangerously behind in those areas. But, but one, of the, one of the things this country needs to realize has been a strength and, and needs to nurture is, is this liberal arts side of, um, of education and the contribution that it makes to citizenship and to public discourse and to one's involvement in, in public life. So I, I, I uh, certainly second that. Please join me in thanking You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.